0: jammed a pair with cheese like this is and this like and it's nine dollars like this is a terrible idea and i was just like i almost like lost it because i was like i had just, you know i've been in the kitchen for like 12 hours i had like orange under my fingernails and i was polite but i was like the reason it's nine dollars is because i peeled and caught every single one of these oranges and she was like oh
1: Welcome to The Corner Table, a Capital Times podcast about food and drink in Madison. When Matt and Claire Stoner Faisenfeld started their food business in 2009, customers weren't quite sure what to make of them. Quince and Apple's little jars of fig and black tea preserves and caramelized shallot confit weren't very sweet, and pairing them with cheese seemed a little bit strange. Fast forward to now, and Quince and Apple preserves can be found in specialty shops in nearly every state in the country. I'm your host, Cap Times food writer Lindsay Christians, and this week on the podcast, I talk with Matt about how their East Side Madison food company has been growing, how they come up with new recipes, and why the government classifies quince and apple as a pickle business. Stay tuned. Welcome to the studio, Matt. Oh, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about who Quince Apple is and how you got started?
0: Yeah, so uh, Quince and Apple is a small artisan, primarily a preserves company here in Madison, um, that my wife Claire and I started in 2009. So it's been almost like nine years now, which is kind of crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, we you know we started here uh, very small, and we've slowly grown over those nine years to the point now where we sell, we sell stuff pretty much in every, all 50 states.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. It's kind of crazy. What did you do before Quince and Apple? How did you decide to start it?
0: So I've made preserves since I was a kid. Uh, it's always been a passion of mine. And, um, and, but I never really thought it would turn into an actual job or a career. But uh, So right before we had Quince and Apple, I was actually working at Potter's Crackers, another local artisan food company here. Um, and then before that, I worked in some restaurants and actually went to culinary school at Madison College here as well. So,
1: How did you come up with sort of your original lineup of uh, preserve types or flavors?
0: Yeah, so um, like I said, you know, I've, I've always sort of had this as a hobby and I've always sort of tinkered with making preserves and, um, and I've always really liked the kind of a more European style preserve, which is not super sweet uh, and stuff that you can pair with, you know, not just breakfast, so more savory stuff like cheese and meats and things. Um, and so, you know, before Quinton Apple was, like, a real legit business, I was making it for friends and family, and and so my wife Claire and I, we, we did sort of a holiday thing for, you know, just for some friends. And we were like, oh, you know, we should, like, sell some jars. It'd be kind of a fun project. And so we sent out an email, you know, to, like, make my parents and my aunts and uncles or whatever, and ended up getting, like, 200 jars worth of orders and it was just like insane it was, which we were completely unprepared to do we were like in our kitchen for you know all my cousins and whatever else so um and so that is sort of how it got and then we were like wait a second maybe people actually will buy these things and it was those it was actually those products that we sort of did the best with in that christmas thing that we ended up having as our initial lineup
1: Do you remember what some of those original flavors were?
0: Yeah, so we still make them. It's uh, so our fig and black tea, which is uh, sort of our most popular, Um, our orange marmalade with lemons, which is like probably my personal favorite, and then shallot and red wine. Um, And so that's probably our most savory preserve, which is, you know, slow-cooked caramelized shallots and, and red wine and, yeah.
1: That's the one that I look forward to on cheese plates.
0: Yeah, it's like one of, you know, it's the one that's like, it's not like your entry preserve necessarily for a lot of people, but it's It's one of my favorites.
1: One of the things that I remember when I was taking a tour of your facility over on Baldwin years ago yeah. um, is that you were sort of trying to figure out the balance between being a really small batch and artisan and labeling every jar yourselves and being able to scale up a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about that process of how you learned to grow?
0: For sure. You know, if this is something that we have put a lot of thought into uh, and have tried to be really intentional in the way that we grow you know like I say you know, when we first started we you know we would sell into like three stores and that felt totally overwhelming um, to keep those three stores stocked and now we sell in you know many more across the country and th- in order to do that we've had to scale up production but we've tried to figure out you know what are the areas that are that can be scaled without affecting the quality. So, you know, we used to literally label every single jar by hand. Like, I would put a sticker on every single jar, and then Claire would make sure it was straight, and then I would stamp it with the batch code, and then we would put it in a box. And, you you know, that's like, it seems crazy now, but, like, it seems really important, right? It's like every jar we make needs to be... Well, what we sort of realized is that, like, okay, when you make... There's a lot of steps to make a jar of preserves. Some of those things... There's a very specific artisan technique that needs to be done, but there's not an artisan way to put a sticker on a jar, right? So, uh, so we're like, wait a second, we should probably just buy a machine to put the stickers on, right? The customer, I mean, it like, doesn't really affect the quality at all. So, we've every step of the way, you know, I think about making a jar of preserves probably has, you know, maybe 200 discrete steps. So, which of those can we use tools and machines to make it easier without affecting the quality? And which still really need to be you by hand. You know, something that we've toyed with over the years is trying to get a machine to fill the jars. And we've had some different filling machines that we've tried over the years. Some of them pretty expensive machines, and they just they can't replicate what we can do with a ladle and a funnel. So still, every single jar we make, you know, we we make up to 800 jars a day. Every single jar is hand ladled and funneled because there's just no replacement for like. You know, when you go in with a ladle, you can get exactly the right mix of fruit and syrup, and, and the machine just can't do that.
1: Are you doing limited run batches or sort of bespoke, you know, preserves for this particular restaurant or that particular place? Do you do that kind of thing?
0: We do. You know, we used to do more of it. Um, we the, Right now, the only store that we do it for is from here in town, um, uh, it uh we hope to get back to it, but it's actually largely because of changes in the FDA regulations that has made it harder to do. Basically, the amount of paperwork and investment that needs to go into developing a recipe has grown dramatically since we started. Um, and so it just makes it a little harder to do. You know, I, you can't just say like, oh, this is what I'm going to make and I'll send it to you this week. It's like a several month process of getting the recipe vetted and tested by a commercial lab and then sent to FDA. And so it's hard. It, it makes it hard to kind of come up with new flavors just on the spot.
1: And that's just for the preserves. I mean, I've heard about that kind of regulation in terms of, like, charcuterie. But it strikes me that meat processing could potentially have more pathogens involved in it than preserves. And when you're preserving, you're already sort of following, you know, a a code or a a method that's going to make sure you're not going to have things explode on you. Exactly. You're not going to have things fermenting in there that are, you know— Gonna make you sick. So that's yeah. It's, it's
0: interesting. Well, we're we're actually a funny product because, um, you know, the the laws were written, you know, in the fifties and sixties, um, so they're kind of out of date. So the their definition of what a preserve is, we actually don't even qualify for. So this is something that when we started was a sort of an issue. We like applied for a jam and jelly and preserves license, and were denied. We're like, why? Like. We, you know we had checked we'd done everything and they were like oh you don't have enough sugar in your product to qualify as a jam like you're not you're this is not a real jam <laughs> so uh so we're actually technically according to the fda we make pickles um which is totally bizarre and we're like you know, like because they can't conceive of a product that doesn't have you know 60 percent sugar by weight or whatever so yeah so we end up getting regulated in really weird ways which is a whole sort of boring but very detailed and complicated saga.
1: What preserves do you make for imagination?
0: Uh, so they make a—it's actually their recipe. They do a cranberry relish, um, which is really good. Uh, and so they—they they sell it in store. They had been making it themselves and then and putting it on their sandwiches because it's on with like their signature sandwich. Um, but so many people were requesting to buy it, but they didn't obviously have the capacity to make it. So we've been actually making that I think for them for. Probably eight years or so.
1: Nice. Yeah. You're like a local co-packer. For yeah, me.
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: I remember a few years ago now, I think, when the syrups came out. Yeah. Um, and there was like a tart cherry grenadine. Yeah. And the citrus is one of my favorites. There was also one, I think, with hops, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. They make mixing a cocktail at home that's interesting really easy yeah. without having to have a gazillion fancy Liqueurs, and so I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about developing those syrups.
0: That was exactly the idea. Is you know, it's um, it's great to go out to a bar and and get an amazing cocktail, but they've got so many tools and so many ingredients and so many things available to them that it's hard to keep your you know you're not going to have a hundred bottles in your home bar. So we were trying to come up with stuff that's you know you could make an easy cocktail at home that was really good, um, and so. You know, it, it, it really just kind of—the rhubarb hops is uh, the one that has hops in it. That was actually the first one that we made. And actually, originally, I was trying to make a preserve, uh, a rhubarb preserve, and it just—like, the rhubarb kept kind of cooking and turning to mush, and it was tannic and very much not good. Uh, and so I was like, oh, maybe I'll strain it and make a jelly— but it didn't set up, and then I was like, wait a second, this would be really good with gin. And I put it in, and I was like, this is so good. And that is, that like is sort of how we do product development. It's really a trial and error process. Um, we usually have an idea that we start with um, of you know, maybe a fruit that we want to use or a certain flavor combination that we're interested in exploring. But that's almost never where we end up. Uh you know, so this sort of thing where we're like, oh let's start by make let's make a new red rhubarb preserve and then we end up introducing a whole new line of cocktail syrups. Um maybe five percent of the batches that we make ever turn into the thing that we want it to. So it is it's fun, you know, to be constantly experimenting and, and coming up with new stuff is one of my favorite parts of the job.
1: What's in the citrus syrup?
0: Uh so the citrus has lemon juice, lime juice, lemon zest and lime zest lime leaves and lemongrass and then a little bit of sugar.
1: That's really cool.
0: Yeah it's and it's super tart that's the one that's like that's the most tart it's kind of like a sour mix but what I love about that one is that like the nose on it is so nice it's so fragrant and fresh and um, it's not just like sour you know it has all these sort of interesting complexities with all of those different sort of citrusy notes.
1: Are there Batches of preserves that you've made when trying to test out a new potential recipe that you just could never get to work. Like a couple of things that you wish you could put out, but they just never really came together.
0: Yeah. Um, well, so we have a preserve that we sell now, which is tart, cherry, and white tea, which almost was that. That one, I literally felt like it was going to kill me to get that product released. Um and I'm glad we did. I mean, it, like, I won a good food award last year, and it's one of my favorites. It's made with all Dorie County tart cherries, just sort of... But it took almost two years to get that product right, and it was probably, like, you know, batch 70 or whatever that we finally nailed it. But um, but there is a product. So we used to sell, uh, make and sell a strawberry rosemary preserve, which I love. One of our my favorite preserves we've ever made. But we had to discontinue it um, basically because... In order to make, like, we could make it in a small enough batch. You could make a batch of like six jars. But if you, if you want to make a batch of like 100 jars, which is about the size of each of our batches, which isn't that much, it, the strawberries would start to just turn to mush. Like, you have to use really nice, ripe heirloom strawberries to get them, to get the flavor that we wanted. But they would just turn to mush by the time the pot would come up to a boil. And so at a really small pot, you can just crank the heat, bring it to a boil, quick dump it into a jar and seal it. Um, But you can't do that at a slightly, even at a slightly larger scale. So that's one that, like, I still am always like, how can we solve that problem? But I don't know if we can or not. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, there's sometimes, like, there are sometimes limitations to things that you want to do or things that you want to explore. And I've never wanted to be like, oh, we can't do that. I'm just sort of like, I haven't figured out how to do it yet.
1: The tart cherry and white tea. What made it so difficult?
0: Uh, well, so basically, what would happen is it, there's a it's an interesting texture. So it's like a jelly, um, but it's sort of a light jelly, and then it's whole pitted cherries floating in it, and it's got white tea and green tea and jasmine in it. So it's really like light and floral and delicate, and it's a really it's a beautiful preserve. But we just couldn't get the set uh, consistently right and so we use a pectin you know mentioning that we don't have that much sugar in our in our preserves relative to conventional um, jams and so the pectin we use is activated instead of by sugar which is sort of what traditional pectins are that's how their gel gets formed Um, ours is formed by calcium and so a lot of fruit um, has natural calcium in it and so it'll It'll naturally jump Apples. In it. Exactly. Um, cherries that turn out do not have almost any calcium in it. And so what we discovered was ha- so literally I would make a batch at home and I'd make a pretty big batch. I'd make like a forty jar batch at home out of you know big stock pot. And it would turn out great. And then I'd take it over to work and I'd do the exact same thing at work and it would just be like totally not set up at all. It, I mean, it literally felt like I was going crazy. And I was like, trying to like look up peer-reviewed articles on pectin formation. I mean, just, it was like a nightmare. Well, what I figured out is that our house was on a different well than our, than our work. And I, so I looked up the water report and the hardness at our home well was like twice as much as the hardness at the, at the work well. So I was like, oh, good. that's calcium. And so, and, we, and you're making it, there's a lot of water in that one, because you're making the tea first, and then, and so, uh, once we figured that out, then we had then we had a solution, but it was just sort of like, I mean, it's those sort of things, like, oh, it's the, I mean, it's the same city water, but it's a different well, I mean, it, and that obviously took me forever to figure out, but it's, it's these kinds of things where it's just like, we, it's, you know, if you make a batch, if you're making 20 jars at home, and 10 of them don't turn out, eh, no problem, like, everybody, all your friends get one jar instead of two jars, but You know, you can't be throwing away half a batch when you're trying to actually sell them. So,
1: how many products are you currently working on on a weekly basis? Like, how many do you release on a weekly basis?
0: Uh, Let's see. Well, we we have so there's like five syrups and nine preserves, or eight preserves and one mustarda. We usually don't make that many in a week, you know, because we've got inventory. But so we we usually make like seven batches every week, and a batch is four pots. So that's another thing. We haven't changed our pot size since we started. Um, We just kind of do a lot of them. Um, And so that, you know, usually on average, we'll make like six or seven different types of products a week.
1: Where are you based now? Uh,
0: So we're on the isthmus. Um, So when we very first started, we were at um, Madison Enterprise Center. Yes, Uh, which is on Baldwin Street, South Baldwin, Uh, and is run by Commonwealth Development. It's a business incubator. And actually, when we very first started, we were there, but we were subletting kitchen space from Potters. I was mentioning that I worked at Potters Crackers, so I would make crackers all day, and then Claire would come over, and we would make preserves in the, until the middle of the night. We did that for almost a year, um, and then we built out a lot of space there, and then slowly grew. By the time we left, we had three suites there, and now we're at Main Street Industries, which is uh, um, on East Main, nine thirty-one East Main. It's Sort of the sister building, it's another business incubator, but it's sort of like where you go when you graduate, and so you've got a longer-term lease, and yeah, so it's great. I mean, we're right on the isthmus, and um, we've got a nice production facility and office and warehouse there.
1: I noticed recently that you purchased Treat brands, which is uh, yeah. delicious sugary nuts and salty nuts and spicy nuts, and I wonder uh, why you decided to do that, and kind of what's what's next for you with with working with Treat?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're really excited about this. Um, so, so we've known Sarah, who started and has run Treat for the last six years. Uh, she's been based in Milwaukee, and so we've done you know we've done a lot of work with her. We're in a lot of the same stores. We include her stuff in our gift baskets. So we've been like huge fans of Treat and and Sarah and the product and the brand that she's built. And so she actually she actually approached us about this. You know, I think she was at a point where she was like, uh, you know, do I want to like do I want to take this to the next level and kind of push it out into distribution or am I ready to kind of explore a new thing? And and I think, you know, for Claire and I, we feel like we want to continue to grow the business. We feel like um, over the last nine years, we've built a really solid foundation, like a the back end foundation for running a small food business. We've got the production processes in place. You know, I was talking about FDA and regulation stuff. Like, that's not easy. That's taken us a few years to kind of get a full grasp on all the new regulations. So we've got that in place. We have a great network of distributors and a great sales infrastructure in place. But we don't want to necessarily grow the preserves to be in, like, every Walmart and Target in the country, right? Like, that's that. if we feel like that starts to undermine the brand. And certainly we couldn't produce in this sort of artisan way if we were going to produce at that volume. So there's sort of a natural cap to the size of, you know, how big the preserves, how big we want the preserves to get, right? And so we felt like, this is an interesting way to continue to grow the business, to grow another artisan food brand. Treat is sort of right at the point that we feel like and Apple was at just a few years ago, where super strong brand, uh, well-known in the Midwest, doing really well in, like, small, independent specialty shops, uh, but sort of st- struggling to figure out how to break into distribution and sort of grocery stores on a national basis. And we've managed to do that with the preserves, so we felt like it was an opportunity to sort of take everything we've learned and then do it again. Um, So, yeah, I think it's going to be a cool project.
1: You do a lot of vending at markets and um, events like the cheese competition, I think, where I saw you last. Yeah. And I wonder, there there maybe is still some kind of communication that maybe you need to do about, like, yes, these are preserves, but they're not as sweet as you might expect. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can... Talk a little bit about those customer interactions, like the kind of questions. Are you getting fewer questions or different questions than you used to when you first started? Um, was there a lot of explaining that you needed to do kind of right up front?
0: Uh, when we first started, people were like, what are these? And like, why would you quit your job to make these? You're crazy. Um, I remember being at a grocery store. This was like maybe like six months after we had started. And uh I was doing a demo and was, you know, sampling. It was our orange marmalade, which is, like, super labor-intensive to make. It's very difficult to make. Um, and I had maybe, I think I had just finished a batch or something and went straight to the store. And a person came up to me, and she was, like, jammed a pair with cheese, like, this is, and this like, and it's $9, like, this is a terrible idea. And I was just, like... I almost like lost it because I was like, I you know, i had been in the kitchen for like 12 hours. I had like orange under my fingernails and I was polite. But I was like, the reason it's $9 is because I peeled and caught every single one of these oranges. <laughs> and she was like, oh, OK. Um, but, you know, I, we don't get that kind of stuff. Anymore. Like, I feel like we were in a different place as a, as a sort of a food community and as a country Um you know, now when I say to people like, oh, they're preserves for pairing with cheese, people are like, oh, cool. OK, that's great. You know, whereas before I, I would, people would look at me like I was, you know, t- telling them to eat fish heads or something, you know, it was like just so bizarre to them. Um, it's much easier to talk to consumers and customers now than it was then. I just think there's like the base level of knowledge about food has really increased.
1: I hope that's true. I think that's true, too. I both hope and I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's where, like, I think it should be, and certainly nowhere near where I want it to be. It does feel like it's moving in the right direction. Like, when we first started, you know, we sold in Madison and Chicago and Milwaukee and New York and Boston and San Francisco, like, places with established food cultures, big cities, um, and had success in those places. And it was really hard to get places outside of those like large metropolitan areas but even now i mean we have stores in we have stores in fairbanks alaska that sell our products and do well with it you know and and i don't think that that was the, that would have been the case when we started so i'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction though <laughs> no, we still have a long way to go
1: well thank you so much for coming on today i yeah, really appreciate it it was
0: my pleasure it's really fun to be here
1: This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison produced by The Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. For restaurant reviews, food features and news, visit captimes.com and subscribe to The Corner Table on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at Corner Table Podcast. I am your host, Cap Times food writer, Lindsay Christians. One of my favorite cocktails to make with quince and apple syrup is a Jack Rose, which is about two ounces of Applejack and three-quarter ounce each of lemon juice and quince and apples tart cherry grenadine. Shake that with ice, and cheers!